Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Heko nai purangi te nei na te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Na mihi nui. I'm Alison Balance, and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ. A few weeks ago, I featured a decade of earthquakes on the program. I revisited the 2010 Darfield earthquake and the subsequent shakes in Christchurch, Marlborough, and Kaikoura from the perspective of three geonet seismologists. This week, and in some subsequent shows, I'm going to find out about some of the things those earthquakes have taught us, and how we are responding from the point of view of creating a safer society. Te Heranga Ru Quake Corps is a large group of researchers from different institutions who together form the New Zealand Centre for Earthquake Resilience. Canterbury University earthquake engineer Brendan Bradley is director of Quake Corps. Quake Corps is one of ten entities funded by the New Zealand government under the Tertiary Education Commission. Uh, it's a CORES program, so the C-O-R-E stands for Centre of Research Excellence, being funded uh, for five years to undertake world-leading research associated with earthquake resilience, uh, and just recently it's been awarded a subsequent uh, tranche of funding to the end of 2028 to continue the great work that we've done. So resilience, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so it's uh, essentially trying to treat the entire earthquake pipeline, shall we say, all the way from the occurrence of earthquakes, how can we better understand uh, where and when earthquakes occur, uh, the ground shaking they produce, the damage to buildings and geotechnical structures and other infrastructure in New Zealand, and then how society responds uh, to that damage, and ultimately how we can try and reduce damage in the first place and how we can make society more resilient so that we uh, can cope with the inevitable damage uh, to a better degree. And where do you sit on the spectrum? Like, what's your research about? Yeah, um, I guess to some extent probably part of the reason I'm in the role as director is I have interests across the spectrum, but in particular I'm trained as an earthquake engineer. So you you could say I'm more toward the left hand of that spectrum, the the earlier parts related to the earthquake causes. Now, I'm talking to you in Canterbury. Have you been in Christchurch for the last 10 years? I have. My professional career has been shaped by the earthquake, shall we say. That's right. So what was your experience of the Canterbury earthquakes? And, And there are the, the several of them. There's the first Darfield one and then yeah. there's the later Christchurch one. Yeah, it's an interesting question for a sort of a person that practices that area professionally and that of course there was the initial emotional feelings that we all uh, experience but then it was very much sort of into business. Uh, how can we make use of these earthquakes to uh, learn lessons that we can make sure in the future we try and as a society have less impacts because large earthquakes don't occur very often as recent researchers, we always immediately try and get out into the field because really there's no substitute for learning from observations. For the Darfield event itself, I wouldn't say it was a shock from the perspective that we knew that there were the potential for large magnitude earthquakes under the Canterbury Plains, but you just never expect it. 20 kilometres from where your house is, for example. So in that regard, it was a surprise, as all as all large earthquakes are. But we were really focused on the fact that, you know, we haven't had a large magnitude earthquake in the, the Canterbury region for a very long period of time. Uh, so how can we make use of this to learn all the lessons um, 
And, you know, to some extent, of course, the Darfield earthquake didn't cause a large amount of damage relative to what was to come. And so I guess, like everyone in the, the general public, we were quite optimistic about the situation. Uh, there was damage, but, it, you know, there hadn't been any loss of life uh, and so on and so forth. So clearly then things changed in the February event. The enormity of the situation with so much destruction actually made it difficult for us to kind of focus on the task at hand as researchers, as I mentioned, to, to really be trying to learn lessons uh, from the event. The, uh, we recorded extremely strong ground shaking, so that's one of my particular areas of interest is analysing the ground shaking and understanding how consistent that is with models that we use to predict uh, ground shaking for the future. Obviously there was extensive liquefaction, uh, a lot amount of damage to residential and commercial buildings, and then of course loss of life. But again, as I mentioned earlier, the focus is just making sure we can learn lessons from this event so that we don't repeat the same tragedies in future events. So when you talk about models for ground shaking, Mm. tell me about those. We can't predict earthquakes deterministically, meaning we can't say exactly uh, a certain earthquake is going to occur at this location at a certain point in time in the future. Uh, But we do have probabilistic models that tell us sort of the likelihood that certain faults are going to rupture over a certain period of time. So, for example, in a 50-year period, we might assign a 10% probability that a certain certain fault is going to rupture. And so then we take that model of fault rupture and we combine it with what we call a ground motion model that then tells us if this fault ruptures, uh, what will be the strength of shaking at different locations in the vicinity of that earthquake. Uh, And then when we combine those two things together, we come up with a quantitative estimate of how likely certain strength of shaking is at any given location. And we use those uh, quantitative estimates to design our buildings and other infrastructure to try and achieve that balance between not having unacceptable damage really frequently, but also not trying to make every residential house a bomb shelter that's you know perfectly resilient but um, extremely impractical from, from the perspective of what it tries to do as society and also in some cases prohibitively expensive. So there's always that balancing act between upfront investment uh, versus the actual benefits that you get. So back in 2010, did you have ground-shaking models that covered Canterbury? Yeah, absolutely. So were they predicting anything like what actually happened? Yes and no is the the simple answer, shall we say. So to a large extent, many of the general trends that we observed uh, from the observed ground motions uh, were consistent with those models. But at individual locations, there were um, some... Uh, recordings that were either substantially higher or substantially lower uh, than the models predict. Now the models are probabilistic which basically just means they account for uncertainty so they don't give us a single value but they sort of give us shall we say a range of values and so many of the observations fall within those ranges but inevitably you have some that fall outside those ranges and so what we were trying to do in particular is understand what are the unique features that led to that very large or very small observation and are they what you might call systematic so do we expect them to repeat in the future Uh, because if if they are going to be repeatable then obviously we can model that directly 
directly so that we try and improve things. And there was cases in Canterbury where we did see for uh, certain periods of vibration, which then affect certain types of buildings, that there were clear deviations of the ground shaking from what our models predicted. Uh, And we've seen the same thing in in recent earthquakes, both in New Zealand and overseas as well. So many people are, are familiar with the large amount of damage that occurred in the Wellington region after the 2016 Kaikoura earthquake uh, and again following the same sort of approach we've done a lot of analysis of, of the ground shaking and identified that certain periods of vibration are amplified uh, by the sedimentary soils in the Wellington region and they have impacts on certain types of buildings more so than others. Yeah I think one of the comments after the Cook Strait earthquakes in particular was that we expected more impact on say two to three storey mm. buildings in Wellington that they actually got off quite lightly. So that was something to do with the period of the shaking. Yeah, exactly. Um, Both for the Cook Strait and Lake Grasmere earthquakes in 2013, and even more so for the 2016 Kaikoura earthquake, uh, is that the distance of the earthquakes from the Wellington region was such that the sort of short period shaking, what sometimes people refer to as short and sharp shaking, that gets attenuated quite quickly with that large distance. And so the strength of that short, sharp shaking becomes quite weak, Whereas the long period shaking, what sometimes people refer to as sort of like a rolling motion, that doesn't attenuate with distance as fast. And so because the earthquakes were up to 60 kilometres away, then the ground shaking in Wellington uh, didn't have the short shaking to a relative sense, but did have the long period shaking. And so then it had more impact on taller buildings than it did on shorter buildings. Now, that's because of the distance of those earthquakes from Wellington. So if you were much closer to those earthquakes, say in uh, Seddon or Ward or Blenheim, uh, you would have had that short, sharp shaking. And so one of the most challenging things for us as earthquake specialists is to communicate the fact that in Wellington... If we had a large earthquake near the city or under the city, we would have that very strong short sharp shaking and it would cause extensive damage to short buildings. And so that, that's one of the challenges uh, to communicate is that just because we didn't see it in that particular earthquake in the past doesn't mean it won't happen in the future. In fact, it will happen in the future. On the anniversary of the Darfield earthquake on our changing world, I spoke to a couple of earthquake scientists from GNS, and their comment at the time was that everyone had always been expecting a big earthquake would be the Alpine Fault. So have you done modelling for the Alpine Fault as well? Yeah, we have. Obviously, the Alpine Fault is one of the, the, the most significant faults in many people's minds in New Zealand. Um, we've modelled uh, that particular uh, fault or the many variations of earthquakes that could occur on that fault. Um, but I think your question is an important one in that just because that one fault is probably the most likely to rupture definitely doesn't mean it will be the next one to rupture. And so there are so many faults that we uh, have mapped and that we understand. Currently the the catalogue of mapped faults in New Zealand is well over 500. So even though of all of those, the single most likely one is the Alpine Fault, actually the probability that it's the next big earthquake is very low because there's so many that it could be. Um, So I think that's one of the challenges, again, that we have is 
we use faults like the Alpine Fault, like the Hikarangi subduction zone, which is under the lower uh, in central North Island of New Zealand, uh, like the Wellington Fault and the Wairarapa Fault, they represent extreme hazards to New Zealand, New Zealand societies, New Zealand cities. But there's so many other faults that, uh, just like the 22nd of February 2011 Christchurch earthquake, little small faults that are very unlikely to rupture, but you have enough of them that sometimes they do rupture. Uh, And so I I think an important lesson from a general communication perspective is it's useful to focus on the big faults. They they create a medium of discussion and mutual understanding, but don't forget the small faults um, and because as scientists we're aware of them, but sometimes we don't always communicate efficiently the fact that there are many of these and they can be the ones responsible for significant damage. You say we have more than 500 known faults. How in your models do you factor all of the unknown faults? Yeah, good question. So uh, we we do explicitly recognise that there are many faults that are not uh, modelled. Um, in particular, they tend to be smaller faults that... Uh, rupture relatively infrequently and because of that they don't leave a scar on the landscape Uh, so you know big faults that rupture often are the ones that create the mountains that you know make New Zealand what it is Uh, and so the smaller events that happen less frequently because they don't leave uh, that image on the landscape we often aren't able to observe them very easily Uh, however we do have over a hundred years of historical observations of earthquakes in New Zealand so we can use that historical observation to build models for the likelihood of earthquakes on unmapped faults in the future. So we do explicitly account for the fact that uh, there is the potential for unknown uh, earthquakes. Just going back to the Alpine Fault, it's a very long fault and it would make a big difference which bit of the fault unzipped because I imagine for a start it wouldn't all go at once? It could all go at once uh, but it also could not. So there are many different ways faults can break uh, and I always find from a scientific uh, point of view one thing that absolutely fascinates me is an earthquake starts by two pieces of the rock moving relative to each other. Uh, that location is what we call the uh, hypercenter or the nucleation point and then if that breaks and one second later it stops in the vicinity, then you get a tiny little earthquake, maybe magnitude 2 or magnitude 1. But if it keeps going a little bit longer, if it lasts for 5 seconds and so it moves a few kilometres in either direction, uh, then maybe you're kind of on the order of about a magnitude 4 or 5 earthquake. And then if it keeps going a little bit longer, then suddenly it's 10 kilometres long and it's a magnitude 6 earthquake. Uh, And if it doesn't stop, it just kind of keeps going. Eventually it can be several hundred kilometres long and nearly a magnitude 8 earthquake. So The fascinating thing is that when the fault first breaks, it's not clear whether it's going to break and then abruptly stop or whether it's going to keep going for maybe minutes and produce one of these huge earthquakes. And it really depends on complicated factors that we understand at a high level, but we aren't able to model at an extremely uh, precise level to enable us to predict things deterministically in advance. So it depends on how much stress is already existing on the faults, how well aligned they are, that movement on one part of the fault will create a sort of domino effect or cascade of of movement on other parts of the fault. Uh, So again, we use probabilistic models, models with uncertainty, to say that this fault is um, a certain percent chance of just breaking in this section, or it might continue on and break another section and another section and so on. And I think events like 
the 2010 Darfield earthquake, where on the order of about six different faults broke together, and then the 2016 Kaikoura earthquake, where that number gets close to about 20, depending on exactly how you count them. And jumps them. some quite big distances. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think, again, the challenge there is... Uh, what we see at the surface and what's happening below the surface. So some of those distances appear very large when we're standing on the surface and we're, we're measuring 10 kilometres from one location to another. Uh, but it's really important to remember that faults are not lines on the surface. They're, well, we, are, we simplify them as planes in the subsurface. So they, they go down from the surface to depths of tens of kilometres. And so even if we do have large separation distances at the surface, they may be much closer at depth. And in some cases, some of the faults actually connect at depth. So they are one and the same fault. And so they kind of what we call splay near the surface and express themselves a little bit differently. Uh, but sometimes at depth, things are not as complicated as what they look like at the surface. I imagine it also there's a big impact on what that geology is and how, how slippery or sticky those rocks are. Yeah, instance. and um, particularly in that region of the the upper east coast of the South Island where the Kaikoura earthquake um, occurred, it's what we often refer to as a transition region where you've got faults in the shallow part of the Earth's crust and then you've got the subduction zone where the Pacific plate is coming underneath the Australian plate. And so you get uh, this transitional behaviour where things are really messy and that's partially reflected in why the Kaikoura earthquake was so complicated is that uh, the tectonic conditions in that area are still trying to reach some sort of equilibrium from where they've been in the past and where they're going to continue to, to go in the future. So what are the biggest lessons you've taken from this very busy decade of earthquakes in New Zealand? The obvious thing is clearly we still have a lot to learn uh, from, from the perspective of earthquakes themselves and the resilience of New Zealand as a country uh, against earthquakes. We often pride ourselves in a way as being a very forward-thinking nation in terms of that resilience, and, and New Zealand has a long legacy of sort of internationally renowned uh, performance in earthquake science and earthquake engineering. However, despite those sort of global accolades that have been bestowed on New Zealand, clearly the last decade shows we are very vulnerable as a country. I think we're particularly vulnerable because of our small population size as well and that we really have three major population hubs. You know, we have the sort of wider Auckland region uh, in the North Island, the Wellington region and the Canterbury region. Uh, and so when one of those gets a direct hit, there's not many other people that can come to the rescue. Uh, I think that's quite different than many other countries globally. Uh, if we have a major earthquake on the west coast of the US and the sort of California region, there is another 50 cities of more than a million people that can come to the rescue. Uh, the same is true in Japan. So I think that low number of major cities makes us very exposed. Uh, for the same reason, a large earthquake in Wellington would be catastrophic because of its impact on New Zealand as a whole. The other thing as well is over the last 50 to 60 years, the resilience toward earthquakes has changed from a, both a scientific perspective but also a societal expectation perspective. It was only in the 1930s, uh, for example, the 1931 Napier earthquake, uh, where we first introduced the idea that you need to design for earthquakes. 
So before that, actually, buildings weren't designed for earthquakes at all. They were constructed following uh, the same sort of approaches that um, sort of our forefathers brought over from, from the UK and, and other places that New Zealand's immigrants have come from, where obviously earthquakes weren't really a problem. And so it's really only been 90 years that we've realised, OK, we need to design for earthquakes, and then how do we increasingly do a better job of, of finding that uh, resilience in it from a design context? So then in the sort of 1960s, through 70s and 80s, a lot of emphasis was how do we design and construct infrastructure that can withstand earthquakes uh, so that the infrastructure doesn't collapse in particular uh, and lead to fatalities and significant injuries. Uh, but the way that that infrastructure would move in the earthquake was such that it would cause significant damage and subsequently require demolition. Now, at the time, because the, that was the philosophy without much observation, we weren't really clear how much repair would be required. We knew there'd be significant damage. I think quite a few people would have expected that despite the significant damage, we could repair it. Uh, whereas what we saw in the, the Canterbury earthquakes is that particularly because of the way the insurance mechanisms were working, uh, it turned out to be more cost-effective to just demolish the buildings and build new ones. That obviously had drastic impacts on the social fabric of, of New Zealand's second biggest city. And I think clearly highlighted that even though that was the design objective at the time, society expected much more. And society expects us to build buildings that can survive earthquakes. Maybe they have some cosmetic damage or something slightly more than cosmetic damage, uh, but I think it's pretty fair to say widely held view is that we expect to be able to go through earthquakes with, with relatively little impacts. Um, so in that regard, I think there's quite a significant mismatch at the moment, even despite the Canterbury earthquakes and the Kaikoura earthquake, I think that mismatch still exists. Uh, and the harsh reality is that if we want better infrastructure, there is some small upfront cost to get that better infrastructure. And so we still have the very short-term view of let's just build something to get through the next few years. And that, that's aligned with the short-term thinking that exists uh, in much of Western society today, but it just doesn't work for infrastructure where you really need a longer-term view to, to try and think what do we need not just now but in 10, 20, 50 years' time. Thanks, Brendan. Brendan Bradley is an earthquake engineer at the University of Canterbury and he's director of Quake Corps. I'm Alison Balance and this, our Changing World podcast from RNZ, first aired on the 10th of December 2020. You can listen again at our webpage rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. The subscription link for our free email newsletter is at the bottom of the webpage. If you're in the market for podcasts to listen to this summer, might I recommend our extensive audio archive? Just click the Episodes tab and you'll find hundreds, nay thousands, of stories about New Zealand science and the environment. Also check out the podcast tab at rnz.co.nz. You'll find some great audio and video series there too. We are on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Stay safe and catch you next time. Nā mihi. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
for full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 